Amen, amen, amen. Good morning. Think with me for the next, we're going to say 30 minutes, 30 to 40 minutes. Got to go fast, a lot to cover, kind of, sort of. But in, in opening, I think, I hope, my prayer would be that this would answer some pretty practical questions for people who are new to the faith. Um, maybe answer some questions about, you know, why do folks talk about, you know, the importance of, like, obeying God and everything. I hope that, uh, uh, that light will shine on that. Um, and then I'm blessed to be able to share what I've learned in my life by those who've continued to pray for me. And so, let's get into this. Worship, let's turn in our Bibles, if you have them, Psalm 115, and we're going to learn about worship. And for the sake of staying really on track, I'm going to have to just go, so hold on, okay? Now, these are critical questions because we're going to discover that worship uniquely defines humanity's course through history. It's a natural and appropriate response for those made in the image of God, which is going to be a key point here. As Jesus alluded to the greatest commandment, so too worship involves all the heart, spiritual, your soul, that's emotional, your mind, that's intellectual, and your strength, physical. Worship is when all of who you are responds in gratitude to who God is and all he has done. However, you need to know the truth of who God is to worship authentically. We're going to examine a little bit of history, some background context, and the relevance of worship in our daily lives. It's a very broad subject, and it's very unique in variety. Like your external appearances, we all look different, right? So you're going to worship differently. But the aim of your worship, I don't care if you're, you're white, you're black, you're Chinese, whatever. It doesn't matter because the aim is going to be the same. God is unchanging. Therefore, a worshiper's posture when offering worship is going to be exclusively unchanging. My slides are being funny. There's a devotional called a Hebrew word for the day that I sometimes enjoy. And go figure, the first entries for March happen to be about worship. And I think that it's important that we have a little bit of a foundation so that we are knowing that this isn't Andrew's ideas, okay? This, nothing, of this, nothing of this is original to me. Um, we want to hear from God's word, so... Scripture is permeated with worship. In the Old Testament, worship was the chief concern of Abraham, father of our faith. It was the core of the moral law for Moses, the foundation of Joshua's military service. It was Eli's reaction when God gave him Samuel, a prophet and a judge, the last judge, David's response to the death of his child, Ezra and the people's response to the reading of Scripture, 
Job's reaction to losing his family and his wealth. And second, God will not accept worship of him in the wrong way. Do you know that? Such as worship that is uh, self-denied, is illustrated by Nadab and Abihu and Uzzah. And this also includes like Christian symbols that we might erect. Contact, contact points of faith, that's one thing. Something that helps you identify with your faith in the true and living God, the woman who touched the hem of the garment. There's nothing special about Jesus' clothes. It was a contact point of faith for her to express trust in God through Christ. That's the significance of it. There's a difference between worshiping a coat and saying this is a place where my faith is connected. Worship is to remember what God has done always for us as humans in time and involves the contemplation, meditation, and considerations of God, not man. It is coming before him in reverence, emptying ourselves of self and what pleases us and giving praise and glory to him alone. Okay, this is going to help us to springboard. So, a fascinating contrast to the word for worship, shakha, is the Aramaic segid. Uh, And that appears in the Old Testament four times. In the book of Daniel, it is always translated for worshiping a false god. It's one of the neat things about different languages. You can tell, is it talking about true worship? What can we learn about that? And what can we learn about false worship? And for Bible nerds, those are the, the Strong's references for the Hebrew, shaka. that's good worship, segid, false worship. So, four questions we're going to explore. We're going to explore what is worship. I hope it confirms things you already know, maybe... Put some extra little nuggets in there. Gives you something to think about. We're going to talk about who can worship. It might seem obvious. I hope you will be surprised. It would be even better if you were not surprised. How do we worship? Again, seems obvious. Let's see. And then who is worthy of worship? Okay. Authentic worship must go through Jesus Christ for its fulfilling effect of being accepted by the true and living God. Okay? A lot of worship going on in this world, maybe in this universe. And Jesus Christ is the way it will be accepted. So, we are going to dive in. I'm going to go fast, okay? The word worship is English, obviously. The first publication of our scriptures, the English Bible, uh, was overseen by John Wycliffe in 1382. And he used something called the Latin Vulgate. That's a Latin manuscript of the Bible. And he translated it into Middle English, like what's Shakespeare, the these, thous, those, thy will, how art thou, my brother and I nerd out and try to use King James English with each other sometimes. It's funny. You should try it sometime. 153 years later, Miles Coverdale uh, in 1535, he translated 
from German and Latin and updated the English scriptures into modern English. Um, that is basically what they used, the King James Version of the Bible. That's what this one is used, a lot of that material to give you the uh, 1611, I think it is, uh, King James Version. And what we learn is that it describes expressions of acknowledging worth or worthiness, and that's usually directed toward a deity. You can hear uh, the similarities obvious in the pronunciation of the word worthship or worthyship. The concept of human worship, though, dates back to the sixth day of creation, if you think about it, for, hum- for, for human worship. According to the, according to the Bible, uh, there were angels and things God made before he fashioned man that were praising him. In Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? The Lord was giving Job a science quiz. When the morning stars, literary devices to call angels, and the, and the sons of God shouted for joy. Now true worship, authentic worship, is what we're interested in. Not so much modern definitions. This is going to be a serious topic, so to lighten the tone, let's do what most people would do if you stopped on the street and asked them. So, what is worship? Let's ask Google. What is worship? The feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity, homage rendered to God, worthyship. How about that? Uh, According to Google, people also ask, what's the true meaning of worship? Again, homage rendered to God. Now, my personal definition would work. To show devotion to would imply trusting loyalty that would be reflected in how you think, how you conduct yourself, and how you make decisions. You reflect what you worship. Psalm 115, 3 through 8. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold. They're the work of human hands, but they don't have mouths. They can't speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Uh, let's see, they also do not make a sound in their throat, and those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And I think that's kind of important to establish when we're talking about what is worship. So we got a general notion of what man thinks about what worship is and what the Word of God says worship is. I would assert that worship goes beyond meanings of words and ideas, though I would say it is a state of being that takes action to be rightly positioned before God. Uh, Let's, for the sake of distinction, clarify what worship is not as well. Worship is not singing, though it can be an expression of worship. Worship is not something God needs 
He is eternally self-sufficient and self-content in his self-existent nature. That's what his name means. Yahweh, yud heh vav Self-existent. I am. Worship is not an emotional experience, but if you think about it, if you are tuned into the truth, your emotions can be involved, probably should be. Worship is not isolated to religious activities, specific times or places, though God, in the process of time, revealing himself, he did establish boundaries proper for worshipers. We said at the beginning, God chooses how he wants to be worshipped. Finally, worship is not finite, meaning worship is forever. And why? You could think this through. The eternal God gives eternal life to all true worshipers. Thus, worship is forever. And we are admonished in Psalm 96 to worship the Lord in the beauty or splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. God is holy, therefore our aim when offering worship ought to align with God's standards for acceptable worship. So, what is worship? The so what question. So what? What is worship? Worship is our expressive response to who God is, resulting in a faithful, though imperfect, representation of his character by maintaining fellowship with him. Number two. Who can worship? What do you guys think? Who can worship? Mm. Kind of, sort of, anybody. Kind of, sort of, anybody. An important feature of, feature of worship is to know who can worship. Who or what has the capacity to. Worship is misunderstood and misguided in many cases, though. Everybody worships. I don't care who you are, what faith you hail, Atheists, whatever. Uh, Everybody worships. Not everybody recognizes or is willing to recognize that the pursuit of their treasure may very well amount to idolatry and false worship. Liking something and being into it. I like music. You know, there's a difference between liking something and pursuing it and like worshiping it. So let's track here. Remember that there are More than two words rendered worship in the Bible's original languages. And a clear distinction is made between true and false worship. Okay, Jesus gives us something to consider. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, so who can worship? Oh, I've been waiting for this. We have an English pastor. Tea time. Check this out. Tea time. I could milk that, Ed. Oh, my gosh. So who can worship? Those who have tea for God. Okay? Time, energy, and attention is required to truly worship. So my question is, what commands yours? What commands your time, your energy, and your attention? If invested in the kingdom of God, it's going to be fulfilling. If this world or self-reformation is where you take your tea, you're going to end up like Psalm 115. I can promise you that God's plans for you are exactly what you would choose for yourself 
if you had the sense to choose it. Because he knows everything. He's perfect. He can't lie. He can't not. He, God can't learn anything. And if he's perfect holiness, perfect goodness, why don't we trust him? Everybody eats food. It's called a diet. You, you know, you, 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 you are what you eat, so to speak, right? Worship is kind of like that. Spiritual nourishment, okay? If you worship like the almighty dollar and riches, you're going to be chasing an appetite. But it's an appetite you've created that can never be fulfilled. You created an appetite and have inflamed it and it can't be satisfied because appetites only want what? More. You never get satisfied. There is no, oh, complete, full. You will be hungry again. We'll try and make sure we're out of here so that, you know, you won't just leave to go eat. Okay? Anti-God ideals end in chaos. Unmet needs, lost hopes, unfulfilled longings, all of these things stem back to the core, ultimately, of worship, okay? The Bible has a few examples, and again, because everybody thinks differently, everybody's going to, there is a true and right interpretation of Scripture, don't get me wrong, but all of your life experiences are going to be unique, and what God speaks to you in his word is going to vary from person to person. So the ones that I thought of regarding uh, false worship, or if your heart's not right, okay, Esau. If you don't know Esau, you can look in Genesis 25, kind of a uh, mortal enemy of, uh, of Israel. Before Israel, Israel is the name of a dude and the name of a nation. Israel's name before it got changed was Jacob. Esau was his brother, okay? Esau was the firstborn. That's a title. It's not like I'm, I am the eldest of three boys, but firstborn is also kind of like a lead pastor or something like that. It's an actual title that had to do with property and inheritance, all of that stuff. Well, we question a little bit what he was worshiping because for the sake of instant gratification... And being a man of the field, pride, you know, I can go out and hunt and get my own food. And it didn't work out for him one time. So he sold his firstborn right. You don't do that. You don't do, especially when God has already talked to your grandfather and then talked to your father. I'm going to bless, I'm going to bless. He sold the firstborn right. was not cool. So he regretted it for the rest of his life. And a lot of the conflicts in the Old Testament have to do with Israel and Edom, the children of Esau. Number two, Nebuchadnezzar, he worshipped himself. And he worshipped his status, his achievements. He built a big kingdom. He was a world dictator, kind of, sort of, save Assyria. Um, and he found out the hard way about self-worship. He went insane. For seven years, he went crazy. He was on his hands and knees out in the field eating grass, got really long fingernails, it says. Mental health, well, 
God built this. Kind of makes sense that your mental health is going to be linked with the truth of the guy who built it. So, number three, Israel's history, and you could call that pretty much, you know, the whole Old Testament. It's a constant struggle of slavery and oppression for failing to learn what God's covenant faithfulness is really all about. Okay? On the other hand, feeding on the good of God's truth is fuel for true and proper worship. Now, you guys got to follow really closely here. Listen carefully. A biblical worldview holds that we are not the only intelligent spiritual beings God created. We are what is called embodied. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit are not embodied. They are invisible. The heavenly hosts, angels. We call this physical material reality, whatever it is, okay? Heaven, also physical, actual, real. But for intents and purposes of how God has divided this thing we call life, angels, we can't see them. They are alive. They are very well. They are spiritual beings. They have their own material, whatever it is, we don't know. But they don't have bodies like we have bodies. Follow closely. The Son of God went beyond mere embodiment and became incarnate. Okay, that is, he didn't just appear in physical form like angels had. An angel kicked Peter in the ribs, took him out of jail one time, and walked out of the jail right in front of guards. Apparently they were invisible. You can choose to believe it or choose to think it's just a story. I think it's true. Angels are pretty cool. They can embody themselves somehow, way, shape, or form. Okay, and Jesus even did that in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord appeared. He appeared in physical, human form. Abraham ran, prepared some stuff to eat for him. They sat there, they ate. The Lord was with, as a man, as a person, it's like me, you, you're human, showed up. That's different than becoming incarnate. That's different. The Son of God didn't just appear. Okay, he submitted himself to a process he invented for our procreation. We call it fertilization and conception. And he became human. Able to reconcile humanity's broken spiritual condition. That's the nuts and bolts of the gospel. If you're following and listening carefully, it's going to make beautiful sense. Because Jesus is getting at something very important. That only spirit lives connected to God can authentically worship. Why? Because God is spirit. Therefore, it follows that a spiritual connection must be possible, right? You're not just a spirit. Humans aren't just a spirit. You are human. You are physical. Jesus has a body in heaven right now. His is glorified and perfect. The firstborn of the dead, yeah. But we're going to have one like that someday. For right now, God still likes material. We're going to have it. I can't wait to get the upgrade. Okay, but Jesus taught us something about humanity, okay? The connection with God is broken. That is the significance of baptism. No, you can't, uh, you can't work your way into heaven. There is no way you cannot sin. You will sin. You will. You are human. You are fallen. 
the miracle is that God had a plan from the foundation of the world to make it so that you, a fallen creature here, can simply believe your dad in heaven that he's going to make it okay, has a plan. How well do you listen? How much are you going to cooperate? Because he will see it through. If your faith is true and you are truly reborn, he's going to see he will mess your life up. Jesus messed me up. Love him to death. Sometimes, man, he never leaves me alone. But that's a really good thing. That's a really good thing. God invested in humanity his own image, okay? Let us make man in our image. That we might be reflections to all creation of his glory. In Genesis 1, 26, 27, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. You consider Jesus' teaching then, it makes sense. Our failure to obey the Creator forfeited a lot of blessings. It cursed the ground. It brought physical and spiritual death. That is why the baptism thing is there. Because you have to be reborn. It's not like a spiritual, symbol, traditional thing. No, it's like a real thing. There are things about this world which you cannot see, you cannot perceive with your senses because you're fallen and disconnected. That is where you must be born of water and the Spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Everybody, you checked that box. You didn't even have a choice about it. Your parents did. Okay? But that which is born of spirit is spirit. You must be born again. That gives you something to think about, I hope. And then we ask, but why? I just kind of explained why. Here's why. For violating the creator's image that is inherently part of you simply being human. You bear the divine image and by virtue of that, He's invested his holy name in you. If you think it through, it actually makes sense. Our failure to obey the Creator forfeited many blessings. Okay, offending an eternal, sovereign, perfect, holy God who commanded certain things would have eternal consequences because he's eternal and there's no good reason to disobey that except for what we're going to see in a minute. Okay, you are in the image of God simply because you are human. Here's something cool. That new movie, Jesus Revolution, Chuck Smith, one of his students, Chuck Missler. This is where I got this from. Think about this. If you were born once, only one time, no faith, not reborn in Christ. If you were born once, you die twice. If you were born twice, you only have to die once. That's pretty neat. Okay, this image-bearing thing. What is image-bearing? What does it mean? Why does it matter that people take seriously faith, people take seriously worship? If God is offended at worshiping something else, it would be good to know the truth of who God is so that we can line up with it. And part of him investing his name and his nature in you is the fact that you bear his image. 
the things that we share in common, or rather, probably better said, things God shared with us are communicable attributes of God. That's like the theology word, okay? It just means similarities between God and yourself being human, okay? If you consider God's creation, okay, and have it in your mind represent uh, non-spiritual symbols of God, like the hugeness of space is like the hugeness of God. You know, it's a non-spiritual way of seeing, wow, God must be pretty big. You know, translated into non-spiritual terms, okay, to rob C.S. Lewis a little bit there. Think of being made in the image of God as being a creaturely representative of God, displayed to all creation, okay? Here's where we're going. You can desire, so can God. You can choose. God chooses too. God chose five people to be in his kingdom. Four of them showed up today to get baptized. That's pretty tight. Do you know that God makes choices? He feels, he reasons, he thinks, he cares. He's designed. Of course, he does do it on levels eternal light years beyond anything we can even comprehend. But that's it. He informs us that he knows who he is. You're self-aware too, right? Do you know yourself? God is too. Which really argues for Father, Son, Holy Spirit because you can't really uh, relate and be social eternally alone. Love can't exist as one person. What do you, who are you loving? So It's right there. It's very obvious. Okay, one thing God doesn't share is uh, being able to create a universe with the power of his word. Like, we can't do that. God spoke and it was. Yahweh is the only creator. There is no other. Okay, Emmanuel. Right? His word became human. Right? So you probably knew a lot of this. Do you understand that God truly loves you? He truly made you in his image. And to truly love him back, you have to be truly free to choose to. You get to choose whatever you want. The truth in the scripture, the truth of the Bible, what it is, who it's about. It is mind-blowing. Absolutely. But if you don't know it, just keep your mouth shut. Or at least go study. Go learn. You know? I get to choose. You can believe whatever you want, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's critically important. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need us. It must be then he simply fulfilled a pleasure, right? He wanted a family to share in the awe of the glory of his person as well as the responsibility of ruling creation. Okay, that's the long and the short right here, of all of this stuff, evil, pain, suffering, wars, brokenness. We're very familiar with that. You want to know why? Because the images of God in all of us are choosing to reject God's faithful and fatherly and rightful plans for humanity. Images of God 
not thinking or behaving under the mandate of their divine image. And that's all it is. It's all evil is. Not listening to how God built it. And when I think wrong of you or you think wrong of me, and people can't see past skin deep, I'm sorry, it's ignorant. It makes sense. Yeah, we're fallen and selfish and hurting and all of that, but that's the reason. It's not about, ooh, I need to respect you. It's about you are made in the image of the Creator. God will hold every single human being who's ever lived to that standard, whether they like it or not, whether they choose to believe it or not. So, so what? So who can worship? Oop. Divine image bearers freely choosing submission to their creator. Make sense? Yeah? You guys must really be liking this. You're so quiet. Oh, my goodness. How do we worship? Okay, first, oh, this is going to be my, well, maybe my favorite. The how question is a little bit more practical. So to start here, God chooses how he wants to be worshipped. And it can be offered only in retrospect, having experienced what God has already done. Rendering awe for his majesty coupled with fear and reverence for his eternally perfect nature, which has been grossly defied. Okay, now there are three different types of worship. And it really actually depends more on how you choose to classify them. This is how I did it. Okay. Three types of worship. If it will listen to me. Oh, yeah. Oh, I get it. Um, the common thread in all these different types. You've got to take your tea. Time, energy, attention. Right? Okay. There we are. Okay, the three types of worship. Again, depending on how you want to count them. Formal worship or liturgical, that's kind of, sort of, like this. There's a schedule that we're totally not keeping to, and it's structured and laid out. Uh, It's formal, it's public. Think modern church services like today. Think tabernacle, temple, ceremonies, festivals. Publicly sanctioned worship. Okay, that one's all over the Old Testament. shouldn't be hard. Informal worship would be unstructured. Could be public, could be private. Um, if you ever go over to, like, have a night out with friends and you all go back home for coffee and cake or whatever you do, if you're all believers and something comes up, you're probably going to be worshiping. There's no structure to it, there's no plan for it. You know, we chew on the Bible all the time at our houses, you know, all the time. We love it. Uh, uh, an example in the scripture that might be uh, like Eliezer. He went and got, he's the unnamed servant who went for Abraham to go get a wife for Isaac. And he, oh God, you led me right to the girl, to the right family. The first, first time, dead on. Informal worship. And then private worship, unstructured, personal, subjective. Be yourself, enjoy. Awesome. I think of like King David producing a lot of the Psalms. He was probably very worshipful. He was a, you know, a musical artist or whatever you would say. So again, worship is a response to who God is, as the sovereign ruler over the material and immaterial creation, both 
the natural and supernatural worlds. Okay. The Old Testament narrative details Israel's physical and spiritual conquest of the promised land aimed at eradicating false worship that kept its followers enslaved to spiritual forever death. Before the Holy Spirit made his home in believers, like the church as a whole, each of us individually, the worship-blocking power of sin kept a foothold, and it continues to keep footholds today in many parts of the world, both in churches and out of church, outside of churches. Okay. Anti-God rebellious ideologies underpin the histories of nations who long ago strayed from their maker. I'm going to read that again. Listen. Anti-God and rebellious ideologies underpin the histories of nations who long ago strayed from their maker. And so he gave them over to their wicked ways. He disinherited them. This is why some think that they're worshiping God, but they're not. Do not be deceived about what it costs to atone for your sin. Okay? Our call is to imitate God's holiness and his otherness. And part of that is understanding his hatred of sin. His plan to reclaim nations deceived by false gods. That is the whole deal. We learned only God's imagers are capable of truly worshiping. A striking and beautiful motivation of God's heart is his hatred for sin. And because you're fallen, and because I'm also fallen, I know exactly what's happening in your mind and in your heart when you hear, ooh, hatred of sin, and I wish I could get over. No, listen to this. Sin, he hates it. Because sin separates you. It separates imagers from himself. It impedes their worship, leaving them spiritually bankrupt. If you're a parent, do you like take pleasure in watching your child go hungry? Starving? No, of course not. It's hurting them. Good fathers don't want their children. Come on, we can figure that out. You being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, Jesus said. We know that. That's all it is, only it's, a, it's, it's, it's deeper. It's deeper than actual food. Okay. Worship is a response to who God is. Now, if we easily forget how dangerous and serious sin is, that makes sense, that's fine, you're born dead in sin. Fish don't know they're wet. They live in the water. They're wet. They don't know that. Dead in sin. Best analogy I can come up with. Check out Ephesians 2. The goodness of God is wounded when his image bearers self-destruct and seek to live without him. Now, a child of God is rightly positioned because they have believed what God has said. Simple. Only God is perfect. Authentic worship, so if you're really in here and you're really actually, you could be worshiping right now. Again, it's not singing. That's part of it. Be worshiping now as you receive his word, as you receive his desire to bless you, to correct you, whatever, wherever you're at with him. Okay. 
But authentic worship, worship is going to begin here. It's going to realize the truth of the human condition and the remedy for it. It's kind of and kind of not like a one-off. Like once you actually do acknowledge the truth of God, the truth of the human condition, it's not like you go back there every single time you come into church. But we're constantly reminded because we do constantly struggle, constantly fail sometimes. Sometimes failures probably have a lot more of a purpose than we are really trusting God with. You know what I mean? Maybe we're, you know, that could be a whole nother hour, so we'll get back on track here. Um, as slaves to sin implies, okay, no good deeds, no positive attitudes, or personal beliefs qualifies a person to enter God's presence. So, how are you going to worship God if you can't even come into his presence? Tell me. Does that make sense? It makes good sense, right? Like, you can't just walk into the Oval Office. you probably get shot. You won't even get that far. You could try and run. Their bullets go real fast. They probably wouldn't even need. they just chase you and tackle you. But... How are you going to worship if you can't even come into God's presence? Okay, the miracle in Jesus is God's cleansing power of his blood and his death through his resurrection, making you slaves to righteousness. So here it is. Believe that believing Jesus pleases God. Where before nothing about you pleased him. Nothing. You are not pleasing to God in and on your own. Before Christ, there is nothing that pleases you. He still loved you. He still loved some people that got baptized because God still loved them. Okay, Romans 7, all over the place. So how to worship starts simply with trusting God's truth. God says what he means, and he means what he says. You know what he says? Believe Jesus died for your sins and listen to him. You got your Bible? That's, that's what God... God has stopped speaking to humanity. You realize this? That's why we have the book. Because he's not going to speak again. When he, the next time he speaks, it's not going to be a good deal for people who are not with him in his family. You understand that? In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Okay? And then the Holy Spirit came and was smart enough, good enough, awesome enough to have it preserved in something we call the Bible. It's an amazing text. The subtleties, the the features of it, if you have not shown, they are not going to teach you that stuff in church. They will not. I'm sorry. But it's awesome. You can find it. There's, There's the internet. Check it out. You know, don't trust your, all of your nerdy sources out there. Check your sources. Know where you're getting your information. But it's awesome. It's not human. Not human at all. Not even close. Provable. Easily. Come see me if you want to see why. Okay. Believe Jesus died for your sins. Again, to worship, you have to be able to come into God's presence. So God has to deal with your sinful condition. Once you're cleansed of the guilt of your sin, and all charges against you are removed, that's called justification, how can you not seek him and thank him and seek his mercy and bless him and praise him for the rest of your life? 
The two things most unlike God are sin and death. And he conquered both of them to show how unlike them he is. Okay? He separates his own who believe. No one could offer acceptable worship otherwise. That is why being reborn is of the utmost importance. And you do that just simply by, again, believing God. I'm a sinner. I need your help. You know, now you, you're going to like actually trust somebody with your eternal soul. It would be in your interest to obey them, to hear what they have to say, to think really hard about it. He loves you. He covers you. The genuinity of that faith might be questioned by some, though. God separates his own, okay? He is going to make you sacred space. Sacred space is open to you by one narrow way. Be reminded that being separated into God's family, being separate is not being sinless. But it is, it's a necessary condition for proper and fulfilling worship. Jesus is perfect. That's the story of the gospel. His death took your sins. He, he paid for it being tortured on the cross. And then when he got put in the grave, that's where he brought your sins. They stayed there. Him, the man, God raised him from the dead. The Father raised him from the dead. The Spirit of God raised him from the dead. Jesus said, I uh, have the authority to lay down my life. None of you in here right now can say, Spirit, leave my body and let yourself die. You can't. You could try. You could maybe, I don't know. Let's not go to talks of suicide. Jesus had that power, though. That's what he did. Okay. Love held him to that cross, not those nails. Okay. He didn't have any sin. The wages of sin is what? Yeah. So Jesus was sinless. The only way death could come close to him is that he took on your sin. And then when he rose from the dead, there he is. That's resurrection. That's who God sees. He sees the perfect, sinless Christ and the perfect, sinless you because he took your sins to the grave and left them there. He offers forgiveness. And he makes you righteous through faith in the name of his son, Jesus. Fallen image bearers must choose to receive his imager's right to choose. God wants us to choose to roar about the good news. So nerdy, I know. I'm sorry for the, uh, what do you call those? What is that? An An acronym. Sorry. I was so proud of myself, though. No, it was cool. God wants us to roar. That is to be reconciled, to obey, to adore, and to repent. God's living word. That's the only thing. Okay? Again, God's not coming down here physically, audibly anymore. Maybe he will. He can. He does personally, individually sometimes. Um, But predominantly his word is what you got in his spirit. He knows you. He knows you perfectly. That is what has the power to convince sinners to receive his gift. If you've received his gift, he, he loves you. He's after you. He's got your number. If you haven't, well, just think about it. If you're arguing with the truth, 
If you're arguing against the truth, what, where does that leave you? Where are you standing if you're arguing against it? Okay? It's the beauty of it. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. That means affirms these claims. That God is true. For whom God has sent utters the words of God. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Believing, then, uh, probably implies obedience a little bit, then, huh? It was by John the Baptist, for anybody who was curious about it. So what? So how do we worship? We worship when we roar, and our hearts submit to what God's heart wants for us and for others. To be reconciled to him, to obey his word, to adore his name, and to live repentantly, to die to self. It's not a buzzkill. It's not a boring life. It's going to make it way harder, way harder, way harder. Because God is perfect. Can't be perfect. But it's an awesome adventure. It is an awesome adventure. And finally, who is worthy of worship? I bet you guys could guess this one. Who do you think? Seriously. Who is worthy of worship? Yeah, God. Jesus' incarnate life beginning in Bethlehem to his ascension on the Mount of Olives, is the culmination of what authentic worship looks like. Jesus' love for his God and Father. God is one. Making himself known in the process of time is three persons. He is a complex unity. The Father sent his Son by over... By, uh, by the Holy Spirit overshadowing the foretold virgin of Isaiah seven, fourteen, which was 700 plus some years before Mary and Joseph were alive. And the original language of Isaiah was translated into Greek like 250 B.C., so you have a translation of an original, and then it actually come to happen. That's why they argue about, uh, oh, it, it wasn't really written back then. They have to figure out a way to make the Bible written late because it predicted everything. Yeah. Yeah. Great faith. How about it? Paul's take on the Christ-centered life shows why Jesus is worthy. He is the root of all these good things. Philippians 4. Kind of jumping around verses, but read the whole thing. Okay, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure or unmixed, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, worthy, worth, worthy ship, worship, worthy of praise, think about these things. 
Jesus enlightens us that it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In John, he states, I love this one. It's been, oh, it's been with me forever. Let's see. He states, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He's talking to a wayward woman who just, man, soon as she put faith in him, everything changed. See, God is spirit, he said to her. That's where we learn it. The first time he was declaring himself to anybody that he was, in fact, the one everybody was waiting for, was some obscure enemy of the Jews, Samaritan woman, who was trekking out to get water at noon. She was the first one that he talked to about. I am he. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And Brother Ed uh, just wrapped up the Hebrews study, and that book further clarifies by quoting one of the Psalms, saying, again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, let all God's angels worship him. Now, you've heard it said like in war, don't shoot the messenger, right? You know what that means. Don't worship him either. God has our good in mind. He has a glorious, glorious future. And we get some subtle glimpses of it in the Scripture, Old Testament, yes. In the Gospels, yes. Book of Revelation, absolutely. Okay. John, even, got overwhelmed with all the good God was sending to him and tried to shoot the messenger. He tried to worship an angel. He fell down at the angel's feet to worship him. But he said, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers. Hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Then John specifies, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's Revelation 19.10. And even further, glimpsing to the world to come when God visibly re-enters human history, Again, he hasn't spoken. He hasn't come. He hasn't, he's given you the Bible. He's given everybody. The Holy Spirit has been working for 2,000 years plus. There will be a time when he visibly re-enters human history. Way beyond, you know, the little lamb version of gentle Jesus that everybody tries to believe in. There ain't no gentle Jesus, dude. There is none. It could be tough. Take a cross. Gentle. When God visibly re-enters human history, we learn that no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. That's Revelation 22, 3. So only God is worthy of worship. He's creator. He is savior and redeemer. He is the king of righteousness and of the universe. He is the faithful and true judge. 
His creations are glorious, but they are a result of who he is. He's all-powerfully creative and all-knowingly wise. Paul highlights this insight. If you know your Bibles, you saw this one coming. If you're new, you will learn. You will learn. The righteous shall live by faith. Write down Romans 4 or 5. Write it down. Romans 4 or 5. Okay. The righteous shall live by faith. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You can believe whatever you want. You can. You have the physical capacity of believing and thinking and doing and all those things. You are physically capable. Is it the truth? Do you know that to be true? It's just you know the contention that the faith will never, the faith will never stop arguing for the truth. We will not. Can't can't shut us up as you can clearly see. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And we kind of touched on. If you find yourself arguing against the truth, that by definition leaves you where? So... Who is worthy of worship? Only the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of worship. The Father is worthy. For being God the Creator, sending His Son to redeem mankind. Jesus is worthy. Guess who's God, who is God's Word? That guy. The Father's Word is Christ. In the beginning was the Word. Jesus is worthy for being God's Son, for redeeming mankind, and being made King and Judge by His Father. The Holy Spirit is worthy. One's a little bit different, too. You never, oh, Holy Spirit, we worship. You don't, you, He always points to Jesus. Always, always, always. The Spirit of Jesus. For inspiring and preserving scripture, again testifying only of Jesus, sanctifying members of the church, and for abiding with believers forever. So, in closing, what is worship? Let's review. Worship is our active response to who God is, resulting in a faithful representation of his character. Who can worship? God's imagers, i.e., that is, humans, freely choosing to return to their redeeming creator out of love. You can worship. How do we worship? Worship involves having tea with God so that your hearts roar for what God's heart wants for us and for others. It involves your time, your energy, your attention. You have to be reconciled. You can't do that. 
Somebody did that for you. Jesus did that. From there, you obey. If you truly understand the longer, just, just, just keep living. You'll continue to make mistakes and hurt yourself or hurt other people, and you will very, very much appreciate grace, forgiveness, understanding. Roar loud, guys. Who is worthy of worship? I think that we know. God the Father is worthy for being God. God the Son is worthy for coming and reconciling humanity to himself. And we wouldn't know about it if it wasn't for God the Holy Spirit preserving everything. So have tea with God and roar loud. Worship expresses our response of gratitude for who God is, results in your lives being a representation of his character, actively seeks to be rightly positioned under God's truth, to maintain fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for our spiritual nourishment and the eternal life of the world to come. So homework. About worship, what encouraged you most? And what troubles you the most? Okay. You guys stay in grace. Heavenly Father, I bless your name. We can only do it because you first loved us. You're a blessing. I thank you for everybody who's here today. I pray that you bless them, Father, just for the sake of your goodness. You're awesome. We love you. We want to be hungry for you. Thank you for your forgiveness. We owe you everything, and we want to give you everything. 